Welcome to episode 251 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. I did my first interview about microgrids maybe five or six years ago. With the rise of distributed energy resources like solar, they seem like such a great tool to advance the transition to clean electricity, while the creaky old national power grid in the U.S. is modernized and provincial government-owned utilities in Canada slowly get with the energy transition. The U.S. has made far more progress than Canada, as the new state scorecard 2023 from Think Microgrid shows, but that's not saying much. And Cameron Brooks, Executive Director of Think Microgrid, is here to explain why. So welcome to the interview, Cameron. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's, you know, I'm, we're basically in worst, partly in response to the climate crisis, but also partly in response to technological change uh, and um, which drives all energy transitions. Uh, we are electrifying our, our economies, you know, by 2050, I, I, I don't know how many times experts have told me you wait, you know, get to 2030, you'll look back on today and the economy, the energy system, both globally, nationally, and locally, will look very different than it does today. And imagine what it's going to be like in 2050. So it seems like micro, we need to bring all the tools to the table, and microgrids would be one of those. But So let's start with just the basics. What is a microgrid? Well, absolutely. I'll, I'll explain a little bit about what a microgrid is. But let me touch, too, just on that vision that you lay out of, you know, 2050. And let's bring that even closer in. Uh, our Department of Energy, uh, for def the defining vision of their microgrid program, puts that 50% of our national energy needs will come from the distribution side of the electric grid by the year 2035. So that's just a little bit over 10 years away. And that's a complete sea change from where we are now, where we've got centralized resources that are generally going in one direction. But to answer your question, you know, a microgrid is an intelligent cluster of distributed energy resources that can be located at a customer resource or at a strategic point along the grid. It can be interactive with the grid, but it also can disconnect and it can island and be self-sufficient. So there's a couple of defining characteristics there that are important to call out. You know, one, it is designed to be interactive. So it's more than just backup power that's gonna trip on in a very simple way, you know, only when you need it, although microgrids can do that but it can also be flexible and can interact with the grid. Um, so it's got a component of intelligence, it's got a component of islandability so that it can be self-reliant, but also that it's interactive. And so that gives it gives a microgrid the opportunity to be beneficial, not only to the customer in times of great distress, but also interactive to the grid on sort of blue sky days. So that's our working definition of a microgrid. Now, one of the things that uh, other experts that I've interviewed have, have touched on, but we haven't got into it in detail now that I think about it, and that is the fact that there are all these really cool technologies that are be, you know ready to be adopted in the process of being adopted by the power sector. And a lot of them have are grid technologies, so grid-enhancing technologies, new power electronics, new... Uh, new stuff that wasn't available. I mean, the grid's 125 years old. 
and and it really hasn't changed much since the 50s, maybe the 60s. And now there's all this new technology. And I wonder about particularly like power electronics, the things you can, you know, switching and being sensitive and predictive analytics, data crunching. I mean, stuff that wasn't even thought of five, 10 years ago uh, now becomes available. How much of that new technology becomes an enabling technology for microgrids? Well, it's absolutely, I mean, you're spot on to say that there are all these new technologies that are going in on the grid side, give us a lot more capabilities, give us the ability to really do what the original grid was not designed to do, which is to manage two-way flows of electricity. So to be able to bring all that power in from the edge of the grid, you need that ability. But the other thing that it really does is it, it allows the customer to uh, deploy resources and deploy technology of their own that can work in, in a complementary way to the larger grid. Again, can be flexible, but up to the point where, as needed, can disconnect and provide seamless, reliable, resilient power for customers. So you're right. I mean, there, there's a lot of new technological capabilities, but it also changes you know, who's making the investment and why. And what are some of those interfaces that we need? What are those going to look like? And how do we design policies that support that? The, I want to give you an example of a microgrid uh, installer uh, that I interviewed. And he's based in, in San Diego. And he said, look, where we are, uh, there are peak pricing uh, pricings that 50, 60 cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, you know, for businesses, that's just a killer. Uh, because the peak prices are coming, you know, are on during the day when those businesses are active and and using most of their their power. He said, so what I do is I go into like a business park or an industrial park and and I sign up customers and then I put in, I spend the capital to put in the microgrid, put in the storage, to put in the solar panels on their on their roofs or, you know, whatever, install solar panels. He said, and not only is it more resilient because now we're not we're not worried about outages from wildfires or whatever the case might be, but I'm actually saving my I make money and my customers save money. And it seems to me that that might not be the norm for the construction of microgrids. But I'm wondering why more entrepreneurs, more service providers aren't doing what this fellow did in San Diego. Well, I, I can't necessarily speak exactly why more people aren't doing it. I think there's some indicators, and we touched on some of those in the report, about things that make that more complicated. But I mean, I think what you're calling out and what this installer is calling out is generally there's sort of three broad categories of benefits that come from microgrids. And that's reliability and resilience. So the ability to disconnect, to keep the power going. It's about cost and rate design. Um, and then it's about sustainability and clean energy production and, and self-generation. But all of the rates, uh, demand charges, time of use rates, things like that that have been developed in, around, in all of the jurisdictions here in the United States anyway, are largely designed to address the challenge of peak load. Uh, when you know everybody, all the power plants need to be turned on and people are really using a lot of electricity. And microgrids, again, and flexible resources in general, give customers the ability to really manage that. So it may be that going forward, those 
rates that were set up to anticipate this this peak that really customers had no way of addressing. Now they've got many more tools to address that. Okay, uh, I want to ask you a question, and we'll get into the scorecard in just a moment for listeners who are probably wondering why we're not talking about the scorecard uh, yet. Um, but I want to—I have a big, big picture question for you, and I think for me, 2023 was the year of China. It was the time when it finally—and and I'm sure this is—you know, people. People, uh, other folks have understood the importance of China in the, in the global energy transition before not 2023. Uh, but it, it really uh, was driven home for me the extent to which China controls the, the industry that makes clean energy technologies, wind, solar, heat pumps, EVs, batteries, all of that. Tremendous control over that, as well as the supply chains. And I think... You know, even uh, people like, uh, you know, people in the Biden administration admit, you know, they get it like 2020, 2021 during the pandemic, they really woke up to it. And that's why you see the Inflation Reduction Act and so on. But the point has been made that China's lead now is so great that it and it's so far ahead of Europe and the United States that it's kind of set off a, a global clean energy arms race. And the US and Europe are madly scrambling to catch up to build their own industry, build their own supply chains. And I, the, the suggestion has been made that rather than try to emulate China with scale and, and price is innovation is the best response for the US. And it occurs to me that given the problems with the old U.S. grid, that microgrids could be a real competitive advantage for the U.S. as it electrifies. Just your take on that. Well, look, I, I absolutely agree with you. I'll leave it to others who are, are more educated to talk about the geopolitics and the geoeconomics of you know, how we compete on a global scale. But it does seem to me that the United States, our core strength has always been around innovation. And when you really talk about microgrids in particular, the innovations that we need are not necessarily about scaling up a manufacturing base for resources, although as you call out, those are big priorities in the Biden administration, in the Inflation Reduction Act. But, but really it is about taking a lot of the technologies that we have now and just deploying them in smarter ways. I mean, really the core of the microgrid is not the steel, but it's the intelligence that goes into managing those systems, making sure that the interaction with the grid remains seamless, remains complementary to be able to respond. It seems to me that that's really a place that we can innovate very deeply. And, you know, as we begin to look forward again, thinking about this vision where we're going to have centralized resources, as we always have, that are going to be providing a good backbone of electricity and clean electricity. But we need to spend a lot more time thinking about what's happening at the other end of the wires, at the capillaries, if you will, of the, you know, electric circulatory system in our country. And, and there's incredible things that we can be doing there that make the centralized systems that much more efficient, powerful, economic. So I, I hope that you know, your prediction is right, that 
we will see North America having a lot more innovation around business models, intelligence systems, management, as opposed to just bulking up our power system going forward. Well, my guess is the U.S. will lead in that uh, in that uh, area because Canada is a laggard, uh, and and frankly, we're we're victim of our own success. You know, most of our we have many of our provinces have significant hydro. So our, our grid is already 80, 82% clean, uh, zero emissions with, between nuclear and hydro and uh, and some renewables. And uh, we've had it too good. You know, we have these great grids that give us power at uh, nine, 10 cents a kilowatt hour. They're reliable. They rarely go down. And, uh, you know, while you, while the U.S. has been scrambling over the past number of years to, you know, re-engineer to modernize your grid and 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 get rid of coal and so on we've just been sitting there around going well, you know we're good we're all right we're okay we don't have to do anything and we're just now having the conversation that you folks have had you know well well before the pandemic anyway i digress and regular listeners will know this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine uh the canada's being slow out of the energy transition gates but okay Time to talk about the state scorecard 2023. Why don't you give us a, an overview of it? Sure. Well, and, and to set that up a little bit, I mean, before you get too enamored with the United States, I would say <laughs> we're a vic we, we, we are victim to our own success as well. I mean, if we go back several generations, several decades, I should say, you know, there was a real effort to electrify our entire country and then to really drive the economies of scale of big, large centralized systems and to build out a power grid that touched every corner. And we did that. And we did that with a, an economic regulatory model that rewarded building, making big capital investments. The, the victimization that happens now is that that's not what we need going forward. We need smaller systems that combine both public uh, ratepayer used capital and private capital. So we developed this scorecard as a way to help assess where are we right now towards this bigger vision, the vision that I mentioned before, 50% of our electricity needs coming from the edge of the grid in just over 10 years. Um, and looking at it from a few different angles. So we have five criteria in our scorecard. We look at overall deployment and are we getting close to that scale um, that, that's painted out there. We looked at policy reform and are states being proactive in addressing especially some of the existential barriers to entire families of microgrids, which I'll touch on more in a minute. We looked at resilience and whether there was a broader statewide objective around grid and community resilience that microgrids were, uh, were serving. We looked at market access and especially the access not just to wholesale bulk power system markets and the ability to aggregate, but are there opportunities at the local scale for microgrids and other distributed resources to provide services to the grid. And finally, we looked at equity. And a little like resilience, the objective there was, is there a larger vision around equity that is being served by the microgrid strategy in any state? Now, what we found uh, is that most states, we didn't give out any A's. We, want, we were ready to award an A uh, for a state that really was you know, firing on all cylinders. But the fact is nowhere in the United States are we anywhere close to even breaking 1% of microgrids 
as a measure of the peak resource needed in any of the regional grids. So we've got a long way to go there. We gave out a couple of Bs where we thought there were sort of some promising precedents that could potentially, you know, lay a pathway forward. We gave out a lot, a lot of Cs where there were some perhaps intermittent or, you know, pilot programs, things that again could be promising. Um, and we gave out some Ds for where we just really couldn't find much activity that was coherent around a, a true microgrid or distributed energy resource policy. I will say we did not give out any Fs. We defined an F to be actively obstructionist or regressive. We debated it in a couple of situations, but we, in the end, we gave out more Cs and Ds. So, you know, the good news and bad news here, the bad news is, you know, we're, we're not nearly as far advanced as you might think as you look in, but the good news is, you know, we think that there's some changes that could be made that really would open up and help move forward. So we, we've got a lot of headroom. Gotta tell you, um, biggest surprise for me, uh, California is not, didn't get a B, and Texas did get a B. A B. So, um, and we, uh, you know, I don't think anybody, um, at least I don't, associate Texas with progressive uh, electricity policy, power policy. Uh, California is usually seen as the as the model there. Why didn't California get a B? Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's an interesting dichotomy there, and I, I sometimes think of it as the quiet war on the soft path. So California has done a lot around energy efficiency. They've done a lot about cleaning up their bulk power system. They have been very uh, hostile to distributed energy resources as a solution. Um, and even in California, the legislature over five years ago passed a law that said, that directed the Public Utility Commission to develop tariffs to commercialize microgrids, to seek all paths, to accelerate the commercialization of microgrids. Five years later, the Public Utilities Commission has issued a tariff, but there hasn't been one microgrid that was developed under that tariff. Uh, it, you know, As I understand it from those much closer to it, it simply is a poorly designed tariff for the purpose of developing microgrids that can provide customer resilience and be interactive with the grid. There was a very innovative proposal that was brought forward by one of our members, a, but a solar company in California that was partnered with a home developer, wanted to build an entire community that would have a microgrid as the core of its energy system, be connected to the grid just like any other campus setting, whether it's a military base or an academic community, um, and, and to be subject to the regulation of the Public Utility Commission. Public Utility Commission wouldn't even uh, hold a hearing or uh, hear any of the uh, supporting arguments for that kind of a proposal. They simply rejected it out of hand. So while California on paper, and I again agree, has done a lot historically to really lead the charge around clean energy and centralized, regulated ways of addressing things like energy efficiency. Um, unfortunately, most it seems as though they are um, struggling to come up with a coherent way to address distributed energy resources. And I think there's a lot of people who would suggest, you know, are antagonistic. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, there's been a tremendous uh, adoption of uh, rooftop solar, uh, so much so that the Public Utility Commission had to cut back on the rates that are paid to uh, to distribute the, the uh, solar. And you would think that with all that solar out in residential areas, that would be just a, a no-brainer for microgrids. You know, you would you would think it would be a no-brainer, but unfortunately, um, that's that's not sort of how it's laid out. And so, you know, let me just touch on a couple of things I mentioned before. You know, being victims of our own success, so we've developed a regulatory model that rewards capital investing. Even if we think about California's strategy to address wildfire mitigation, as an example, um, their strategy there is to bury all of the power lines. It's probably the most expensive strategy that they could come up with. There's economic studies that have been submitted into the record at the California Public Utility Commission showing that microgrids would cost about one-tenth and provide better resilience because that not only would it be resilience during those extreme moments where they need to de-energize transmission lines, but those microgrids would be available under blue sky conditions as well to be generating clean energy. Um, so the challenge there is that, uh, that the, the economic models we've set up reward the burying and the large scale and deployment of capital and they punish private investment or community investment into local resources. Well, let's talk about Texas. And um, I remember 20 years ago, I used to work in Texas uh, and well, West Texas and would see those big turbines, wind turbines up on the hills. And, and so Texas has a lot of experience with, with wind, tremendous experience with wind and is starting to adopt solar in a big way. Um, what uh, merited the B that you awarded Texas? Well, really what we see there is a, a very large fleet of microgrids that have been deployed. And, um, and one of the key components is having access to an open competitive market so that those microgrids are not just sitting there for when the you know, lights go out completely. They're not subject to an administratively set rate like in California that, that is simply uneconomic. But when, when the conditions are right, that fleet of microgrids can turn on, be providing power into the bulk power system, helping to prop up a strained grid, and also to be benefiting from the economics that come with that. So, I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen there is just that market access allows the layering of different kinds of revenue to make the microgrid be able to uh, monetize all of these different benefits that it's providing. Now, the Department of Energy and and Jigger Shaw uh, has been a, an evangelist for this is uh, the establishment of virtual power virtual power plants. So you basically aggregate a number of distributed energy resources. So, you know, neighborhoods of rooftop solar and you get them all, you organize them all together so that they can be dispatched uh, often by a, a company that's providing that, that service. And you do it at the time that, that makes the, you know, if you're doing it into an open, if you're just dispatching them into an open wholesale market, then you do it at the time when it makes the uh, when you make you make the most money, which you know would be a peak demand, when you when the grid needs it most, it's a price signal that that the grid is sending to these these microgrids, and are we seeing a lot of virtual power plants tied to microgrids in Texas? Well, 
Um, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the, what I just described, you know, those plants being able to provide power back into the pulp, bulk power system. Now, you know, whether you call that a virtual power plant or not, I suppose is subject to some debate because there are actual electrons flowing there. I mean, what, virtual power plants are fantastic in the sense that they provide all of those benefits of flexibility um, and to, the, to the larger system. But one piece of them being virtual that's very different from the on-site microgrid is when you get to that last moment where you know the larger grid trips off or is disrupted in some way, the virtual power plant doesn't provide virtual resilience or actual resilience in the same way that the microgrid does. So you know they're they're clearly cousins of one another and and subject to a lot of the same forces, but. Um, but but you know there there's certain benefits that you can only get from having resources right there on site. Right. I just assumed that there were that that microgrids were a good fit with virtual power plants. And so if you had a you know you talked about having a fleet of microgrids that you they would be organized as virtual power plants. But doesn't sound like that's the case. Well, they certainly can be, and it depends on the market structure. Again, one of the challenges, Texas provides a good model in the sense that there is an open market there. Most of the country does not have that level of market access. And so the virtual power plant becomes subject to some kind of program that's been developed by the regulators or by the utility to essentially receive that flexible load and to be able to work it into the grid operations. Those programs really don't exist in any real ubiquitous way across the country. There's another particular challenge that you know developers of microgrids face and communities that might benefit from microgrids face, which is in every state in the country, there are restrictions around uh, establishing power lines that cross property lines. So if you take, for example, a cul-de-sac with residential homes on it, they might want to have one single battery system to provide some level of resilience. Resilience when the power might go out, but also you can, you know, you hear a lot about the clustering of things like uh, EV charging and you have this cul-de-sac effect. Well, if you had a battery there that could be able to manage that load, uh, it can be a much more efficient way than building out uh, the grid to be able to serve that area. But that really requires the interconnection of private uh, customers. And right now that's not allowed anywhere. The only company that's allowed to do that is the utility. And it's set up that way for a good reason in terms of providing the economies of scale. But I think now as we're in the year 2023 and we have all of these new technologies, you know, we're sort of wondering whether it's time to look at those rules again and ask, are those really serving us in the way that we want them to? Or are there other ways that we might be able to modify, relax those rules in certain situations to be able to get the benefits of, of microgrids that right now, you know, are we're, we're not getting? A question occurs to me, and that is, you know, we're talking a lot about uh, residential uh, demand, residential load. But now Alberta is a, 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 an unusual uh, example, but I want to use it because 86% uh, of their load is non-residential. It's industrial, commercial, business load. And it would seem to me that rather than that the easiest microgrid to, to build 
would be the one that connected those customers uh, as opposed to residential customers. And so might it be that microgrids are going to emerge in, at scale uh, in that market, the industrial commercial business market? Well, absolutely. And look, I, you know, I talk about things like the residential home because it's a little bit easier for us to visualize. But one of the things about microgrids is that they are truly scalable. So we will see them and are seeing them at all scales. And in truth, right now, the, the biggest segment is absolutely in the commercial industrial sector. Those microgrids that you know I mentioned in Texas or we spoke about in a common example there would be a grocery chain or a Walmart store that is putting in a microgrid because they need that resilience to protect their inventory for their commercial purposes, same at industrial facilities. But especially, and you brought this up at the beginning, you know, at, we're at the early stages of an electrification era, um, especially thinking about things like charging electric vehicles. Those are not always in locations that the grid can actually support that kind of demand. And in many situations, those are now being served by microgrids. And I, I imagine that that will be an area that has tremendous growth. There are communities around the country right now that would like to have more service from their utility, but, but they're essentially waiting in line for the utility to build out those resources to be able to serve new commercial load. When there are opportunities available right now for those loads or those potential loads to be served by microgrids. So I think as we see electrification requirements becoming, well, both requirements and just the benefits of electrification, I think there will be a nice way for microgrids to grow hand in hand with those applications. So I think going back to your initial hypothesis, I, I completely agree. I think that those sectors are gonna see much more growth and the residential sector will follow. Let's talk about the other three states that got bees: Connecticut, Colorado, and Hawaii. What, uh, what land? What, what were they doing that merited a bee? Yeah, well, what they were doing, and I'll, I'm I'm based in Colorado, so perhaps I'm a little bit biased there, but I'll use that as an example. I mean, what we saw there that we felt warranted a bee was there was ongoing microgrid activity, but there was also a confluence of you know, here in the United States, a lot of federal funding comes through state energy offices. Here in Colorado, that state energy office was directed by the legislature to establish a grant program to support microgrid development, especially in rural areas for resiliency needs. Um, they, they have ongoing activity at the State Public Utility Commission that's looking now at um, how to develop a microgrid roadmap. Again, that was something that the legislature asked them to come up with. So working in the two agencies, the Public Utility Commission and the State Energy Office are working together to develop a larger vision for where can microgrids serve the needs here in Colorado. And so, you know, we, we see that effort to try to bring more people to the table and align the applications of microgrids in various, um, not just as a, as a grid resource, as an example, but really as a larger community resource. So we, we hope that that trend will continue. But that's that's why they got to be. And similarly in Connecticut and Hawaii. Um, 
maybe we'll wrap up the interview this way, Cameron. I'm I'm very fond of saying that the, uh, uh, the this this decade, the 2020s, are is the disruptive decade of the of the energy transition. I think that you know we we, we see economies being disrupted, energy national and regional energy systems being disrupted, and uh, as we made the point earlier, uh, by between now and 2030, when you arrive at 2030, we'll look back and there's been tremendous change. So if you could look ahead from now until 2030, what, just give me your best best guess at where the role that micro uh, microgrids will play in the US power sector in 2030 and the scale of, of that uh, activity. Yeah. Well, look, as I look ahead, I, I certainly hope that the scale will be consistent with what the Department of Energy has put forward and defines their microgrid program, which is really a fundamental sea change. But as I sit here today uh, and trying to project myself five or six or seven years into the future, and I think about what are the capabilities of artificial intelligence, um, you know, and it strikes me that that our regulatory system and even our energy system doesn't have a lot of imagination there about what that could look like. So I think for, I read an article not too long ago that suggested that within a few years, we might actually be able to translate whale language through artificial intelligence. I mean, again, mind blowing stuff. But I think about that in, the, in terms of the electric system and what might that mean if every home was capable of being able to ride through a disruption for two hours or four hours. They were able to do that every day, not because it was some big emergency, but because it just made sense to be able to you know, self-generate for a little while. That level of, of intelligence and energy management that is essentially fractal in nature, can go from the house to the block, to the community, to the city, I think it's possible that within a few years, we could completely eliminate peak demand. That seems to be the goal of the electric industry is how do we meet and manage this peak load that somehow we just need to chase and there's no other way to manage it. I think that that paradigm can be completely put on top of its head with artificial intelligence and a new approach to grid architecture and regulation, one that encouraged customers to be deploying these technologies in their homes, in their businesses, in their communities, but to establish a way that those resources can interact seamlessly, politely, if you will, with the larger grid. I, I see a very bright future ahead, and I think uh, that microgrids are going to be essentially the neuron of a larger intelligent neural network that will become our energy system. Whereas right now, we just don't have that level of communication or intelligence embedded in it. Uh, it's a great time to be an energy journalist. I got to <laughs> tell you, this this uh, there is no shortage of really cool stuff coming down the pipeline. And I look forward to seeing if your vision for 2030 comes true, Cameron. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you.